This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Free Exchange from CapEx. I'm Oliver Wiseman, CapEx's editor. Recently, there's been a flurry of activity on the centre-right of British politics. At the Centre for Policy Studies, which, full disclosure, publishes CapEx, the New Generation Project is busy identifying the policies that apply conservative principles to the problems faced by younger voters today. Other initiatives, including Freer and Onward, have been launched to find ways the Conservative Party can broaden its appeal. None of this would be happening if last year's general election had gone according to Theresa May's plan. But when the Conservatives lost their majority, it became clear that the party needed to find answers to all sorts of big questions. At the forefront of this wave of Conservative soul-searching was the MP for Mid-Norfolk and head of the Conservative Policy Forum, George Freeman. Last summer, he organised a festival of ideas that was quickly dubbed Tory Glastonbury. Ever since, he has been an important voice in the conversation about the future of the Conservative Party. For this week's episode of Free Exchange, I spoke to George about the battle of ideas on the right, the challenge of Conservative renewal, and the return of his Big Tent Ideas Festival. Right, so George Freeman... There is a, we are in the middle of a wave of projects on the centre-right, um, Freer, uh, New Blue and the New Generation Project at the Centre for Policy Studies, Onward, Bright Blue. Um, last summer, you launched one of the first of these initiatives, I would say, which was your Big Tent Ideas Festival. Before we talk about that, can you just talk about all of these initiatives as a whole and what you think, they're, what you think the problem they're trying to solve is? Yes, of course. I, I, I think we're living through an extraordinary period where the settled order politically has, people have come to realize, is um, dismantling mm-hmm. uh, through the last three, four, five years. Um, and I think you're seeing on the center right an incredible energy uh, of a new generation of younger conservatives, both in parliament, having been brought through under David Cameron and Theresa May, but also out in the candidacy, out in the think tanks, out in that hinterland. Uh, and it's fabulous. You're, you're seeing a new generation bursting with ideas and imagination and a commitment, more importantly, that conservatism has a huge amount to offer in shaping a 21st century politics that goes with the zeitgeist of empowerment, of 
um, the insurgency against big government, big clumsy bureaucratic systems that demands the empowerment of people, the push-button generation who expect to be able to exercise mm -hmm. their citizenship with the help of technology in a spirit of liberty and empowerment. And I think that's an incredibly exciting moment. And uh, as I said, the, the Big Tent uh, Festival, uh, Big Tent Ideas Festival that you launched last year was sort of at the forefront of all of this. How did the idea for that come about? I mean, am I right in thinking it was very much a reaction to the election result um, and Corbyn's popularity and so on? Or? Well, yes and no. Um, yes, in the sense that it was obvious to me um, through that election campaign and blindingly obvious at five minutes past ten that we had just been given the most electrifying warning uh, by the electorate that unless we signal respect, deeper respect for the grievances that Corbyn has utterly mischievously harnessed with some daft policy ideas, but that's not the point. What he's done is to signal that he's listening to the grievance, that unless we signal an appetite to tackle those grievances in a conservative way, then we won't be able to reconnect with those voters who are fearing through the last few years that uh, we are not there for them. But it was also born, frankly, of 20 years of going to conference and increasingly feeling like it it was more of a, you know, I think all the conferences have become really more of a sort of donor, corporate. Uh, and if you're a minister, as I was, it's a very powerful policy platform. It's a very powerful thing, actually, important moment for ministers to go off away from civil servants and departments and meet people on the front line of the industries and the sectors that they legislate for. But it's not, I think, a, these days, a forum for really deep grassroots political engagement. I mean, if you were designing a festival of conservatism, you wouldn't go behind barbed wire, high security, and expect people to spend £1,000 over three days in a pretty hot and fetid conference centre. That, that, that wouldn't be your natural <laughs> format. So for years, I've, I've thought that our cultural hinterland our demonstration of our values, of our spirit, of our culture isn't well represented by the conference circuit. And I felt last year was very obviously the year in which we ought to try and tackle it. So the Big Tent Ideas Festival is just that. It's a festival. It isn't a um, – uh, we, we aren't setting up one think tank. We're trying to be a festival for the renaissance of fresh thinking on the centre ground. Uh, it was labelled Tory Glasto last year mm – -hmm. um, but I don't want people to think of it like that. It isn't a, a conservative party uh, event or festival. I, I am chair of the Conservative Policy Forum. But the festival is about reaching out to those people who aren't primarily interested in party politics but are really passionate about the issues. And I should say to anyone listening who's interested in this, it's back this year, uh, it's second year, uh, on September the 8th. Um, and you can go on the website and register your interest and, and, and go along if, you, uh, if, you're, if you're keen, if you like the sound of, of, of what George is saying. Yeah, that's right. And, it, and it's going to be 10 times bigger. Last year, we did it in six weeks. People said to me, it's a great idea. When are you going to do it, 2019 or 2020? I said, no, we're going to do it in six weeks. And <laughs> it was small. It was a little pilot event. Mm -hmm. um, but we learned a lot and we proved the model. This year, 10 times bigger. It's going to be at Hatfield House, our medieval tented village in the gardens of Hatfield, and an amazing lineup of speakers in our politics, philosophy, society tents, our global Britain tents, and innovation tents, in the vibe of a, of a great literary and music festival. But our theme is politics in the 21st century. Great. Well, to go back to some of the um, 
so, so the, the political issues behind this. You, you mentioned how you know that one of the lessons was you had to take court, the grievances that Corbyn took seriously. Um, conservatives had to take them seriously too. You know, one of the interesting things about the last election was Theresa May actually did quite a lot of her pitch before the election and during the election did take those grievances seriously. I mean, her sort of burning injustices speech has really, really seemed to capture the imagination. Um, so why do you think that Corbyn was so much better at kind of turning that into popular support? Well, yes, I think the the PM's burning injustices speech was an electrifying moment. It was um, genuinely captured the imagination, I think, of the country and Westminster and the commentariat and and the party. It was a it was an incredible moment. And had we fought the last general election in that spirit, and or framed Brexit in that spirit that through Brexit we intend to tackle these burning injustices. We're pursuing it not as a distraction from the injustices and the grievances that are, I believe, at the root cause actually of a lot of that Brexit vote, uh, but in any event are clearly the primary drivers for people's political engagement at the moment, then I think we'd have had a different result. But the truth was that after that burning injustices speech, events have meant that the PM's subsequent nine months were really dominated by some pretty hard Brexit language. As the mm-hmm. PM signalled, Brexit means Brexit. It means coming out of all the European institutions and some pretty hard language from the hard, harder wing of the, the Brexit movement. Uh, and then a general election campaign in which just about every mistake that could be made was made. So I think that's why the electrifying message of that speech was rather lost in the general election campaign. In fact, I've said elsewhere on record, have we fought on that ticket? I think we'd have had a the majority that everyone was assuming. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you brought up Brexit because um, I believe you voted Remain in, insofar as that matters um, anymore, but very much take the view that Brexit is something that has to be seen in a, not just a positive light, but has to be, has to be seen as an opportunity rather than a sort of thing to be managed. Firstly, I, I hope I'm sort of not mischaracterizing your your views on, on, on that issue. No, I, no, that's right. I was, as Minister for Life Science at the Department of Health and Business, responsible for a £60 billion sector employing a quarter of a billion people, uh, which was more or less to a man and woman unanimously in favour of Remain. I felt mm-hmm. my duty through the referendum was to speak for that sector mm-hmm. and in my constituency to give my constituents a choice. I had Douglas Carswell and Steve Baker, good friends, up to Norfolk so that my, my own constituents could choose. Uh, my view was that, on balance, it was a uh, it was the wrong thing to do. But we lost, <laughs> and the British public have decided. I think it, it, therefore, the debate about whether we're doing Brexit or not is not for the political class. It's a valid debate for the electorate to have, but we, I think, have to get on as public servants and frame it. And my argument is but we must frame it in the spirit in which it was uh, authorised, 48 to 52, and in the spirit of unity. And we have to recast Brexit in a one-nation conservative mould, not in the mould in which it was frankly argued for uh, in my part of the world, some pretty xenophobic, nasty, hard Brexit language from UKIP. And that's what many people associate Brexit with. And we have to give it the nobility of a one-nation conservative philosophy. So are you then a bit kind of disheartened by the way in which, at least at the time we're speaking, we seem to be very bogged down in kind of debates we, we sort of already should have had, 
uh, and the minutiae of customs unions and so on, and not making this thing. And this is not a point against the prime minister or the government in particular, but the de- the tone of the debate being one in which we are not kind of seizing an opportunity, and instead we are those divisions are arguably getting deeper rather than. Yes, I think it's incredibly depressing. I think it's counterproductive. I think it's unnecessary. And I think it's dragging the whole process and the whole nation down. Uh, look, I think if, if we were to go back to the electorate and say, look, this is a really bad idea, we'd unleash an anti-politics tie, the like of which we've never seen. It's our job and our duty to make this work. Um, I've likened Brexit to an MBO, you know, a management buyout in a company. And normally, before you trigger an MBO, you've got clear as a company why you're doing it. And the truth is, we've triggered it, and the debate about what sort of outcome we want is still going on, all too obviously, in the cabinet now. Now, to some extent, that's inevitable. It's a big negotiation. There'll be differences Mm -hmm. of view, and so there should be. It's clear to me that there are people who basically think no deal would be quite a lot better than just about any deal, and we should prepare for that on the basis that um, it, it would not be a bad thing. I think no deal would be a disaster, and we need to be... Negotiating hard, of course, and I do not want to undermine the Prime Minister's ability to do that. But I think it means that the Conservative Party and the country needs pretty quickly to come together and frame a view that we can all live with. Okay, well, let's move back to the... We've had, I think, that's quite enough of Brexit for uh, yeah. the one podcast. Let's move back to the domestic kind of agenda. One of the things I think is fascinating about this question of the, the, the challenge the Conservatives face, thanks to Corbyn, uh, and as you say, the the kind of grievances he's capitalized on, is on the one hand, clearly there is a huge amount of frustration out there and, and that requires, just th- those problems have to be fixed. Uh, on the other hand, politics at the moment, because of who Corbyn is, is such a high stakes game. I mean, if the Conservatives lose to Corbyn, frankly, that's just so much worse than losing to Ed Miliband or, or whoever. And so given that dilemma, what do you say to your colleagues who maybe tempted by the idea of just kind of playing it safe and trying to squeak out a win at the next election and saying, you know, we really can't afford to, to, to annoy various sections of the electorate, whether that's to fix housing or to fix tuition fees or, or whatever it is. Well, I think they're playing with fire and I think it will, uh, I think the danger of that strategy is, firstly, there's a danger you look complacent, which is absolute death in modern politics particularly for a party that's been in power for eight years, particularly for the Conservative Party, we we must least of all look complacent because the stereotype that's mis, that's portrayed and misportraying us is that we're complacent in office. But also the underlying challenges we face if we're going to make a success of Brexit have to be tackled. And the idea that we're going to come out of Europe and suddenly all our problems are solved, our productivity problems, our skills problems, our export problems... Uh, and this is a fundamental re-engineering of the British economy. Mm-hmm. Um, so if we're going to make a success of this, uh, and we're going to make sure that Brexit isn't a distraction, but a catalyst for tackling those domestic challenges, it seems to me we we absolutely need to redouble our efforts. And actually, that's the thing about Brexit that I most like, is that eight years in, if it wasn't happening, I think we'd be sitting here saying, if only there was a moment that, that would really turbo our mission, mm-hmm. that was catalytic of change, that really put some urgency uh, back into everyone's understanding of why we need to be, be bolder, then here we have it. So I, I think to, to lazily assume that the nation is pro-Brexit, as long as we're the pro-Brexit party, 
we will ride that wave to an inevitable victory over an unelectable Jeremy Corbyn. Well, that was basically the philosophy of last year's general election. And we lost 30 MPs. The Prime Minister lost her majority, despite that electrifying crusade on social injustice. That was a warning. Only fools would ignore the warning and carry on. I think we should make sure that Brexit is a means to that end, not a means in itself, which is rather how it looks and feels at the moment. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. One of the things CapEx does is tries to make the case for popular capitalism. Yeah. Um, uh, which I think... I. Having read, you know, well, you've written for CapEx, so I know you're probably on board with that, yeah. with that task. I'm interested in what you think about capitalism and sort of the diagnosis of where it is as, a economic, as an economic system, whether you think that it is basically delivering and needs a few tweaks or whether you think we are really lost in the woods and need to reimagine the whole thing or, you know, where you sort of sit on that. Well, I, I think that's absolutely the issue. The first thing, I, I mean, just observe that globally, capitalism has never been so successful. The life chances of the poorest on this planet have been transformed more quickly in the last few decades through the, the extension of market economics post-Cold War than at any time in our history. We're living through the most extraordinary period as a result of capitalism. And it's here in Britain, the home of modern liberal democratic capitalism in, in so many ways, that we have a problem. Why? Well, partly because of the crash the consequences of which, the legacy of which has helped to really break a contract between the generations and a social democratic contract that has prevailed since the war. Secondly, because I think you've seen off the back of Iraq a real contempt for a kind of slavish um, foreign policy that's dictated by Washington, which the left have harnessed into a sort of broader anti-capitalist, anti-American, anti-Trump. And, and if anyone was going to make it easy for them, Donald Trump has made it easy <laughs> yeah. for them by playing into those cultural stereotypes. But it's also because here domestically, 
we've got a generation who are too young to remember what the left last did when they were in power and too young to remember how it was the conservatives that came to the nation's rescue. And they're struggling. And I think all of us probably missed through the coalition the extent to which professional, aspirational, young, go-ahead, get-on Brits were locked out of having a stake in capitalism. We're not talking here about sort of uh, lefties who we're not connecting with. You wouldn't expect as a Conservative Party to con convince every ang angry young man. No, we're talking about young professionals in anywhere in London and the southeast who are earning well but cannot afford to buy. So they're renting. They're literally burning money. And we appear to be the party of the landlords coining it rather than the party of the people who can't get a stake in capitalism. Now, of course, that's partly about housing, but it's also about intergenerational fairness more broadly. This country has racked up huge debts. Largely anybody over 50 has been primarily responsible for it. And if they own assets, has primarily benefited from that economics and from the post-crash QE, which is inflated asset prices. And anyone under 45 can't be blamed for that debt and is um, feeling the pain as a result of it. That's a profound issue for a society which we haven't really gripped through the coalition. And I think this last election signals that we have to. And that's about more than housing. It's about national insurance. It's about care. It's about who pays for those debts over the next 10 or 20 years. On that, it's fascinating, the generational point. And I think one of the, it's been, obviously it's uh, the Resolution Foundation last week sort of brought this up again with yeah. their, their proposals, which were started a conversation, even if the exact policy maybe wasn't the capex remedy to these problems. But um, the thing that, the sort of controversial question about that issue, I think, which doesn't get asked is, to what extent do you think it's a reasonable expectation or, or, or attainable expectation of younger generations to have what baby boomers have. I mean, well, I guess what I'm asking is to what extent was that a sort of once in a, once in a several generation experience where economics and demographics and other things came together? I think that's one of the difficult things about politics in Britain at the moment is there isn't, it isn't clear that's actually deliverable again. Well, I, I, if the question is, you know, can we get back to... 1950s Macmillanite, you've never had it so good, mm -hmm. um, sort of easy prosperity from easy growth, suburban extension, white goods for everybody and all of that. I think the answer is no. But if the question is, can we get back to a situation in which aspirational young go-ahead people can build up a nest egg in society, whether through property or through shares and through having a stake in our economy... And if they want to own a home, can do so. Uh, yes, I think we can. Um, but I think it. Uh, at the moment, we've tended to basically try and solve the problems with, you know, we're playing one club golf. So in an attempt to unleash the economy post-crash, we put in place various measures to support the big volume house builders to, to build out. And we've seen, certainly in my part of the world, huge, big, lazy house dumping developments around all the villages, putting pressure on infrastructure, incubating real anger at public service cuts. It's counterproductive. Whereas what mm -hmm. we should be doing is building new towns. Mm -hmm. I think most counties in the southeast of England could, could build a new town. Um, and putting money into infrastructure and building more on brownfield land and really turboing the provision of uh, first home, 
flats, uh, accommodation for young professionals, pre or with early families. If you look around Cambridge, fastest growing city in the country where I had a career, there are now about 10,000 units built within a mile of Cambridge Railway Station. People are cycling, walking, modern families. Not everyone is looking for a four-bedroom commuter home Mm -hmm. in deep suburbs or deep rural. And I think we need to be a bit more subtle about what we're building. And this is a London and Southeast problem more than it is up north. And I think we need to recognize the different bits of the housing problem and tackle it. But ultimately, the problem is we're at 1% growth mm-hmm. and we're at 4% inflation. So people are not feeling the wealth in their pockets. If we get that right, we should be at 3% trend growth. And if there's a Brexit dividend at 4 5%. So we're way off on growth and we're not being creative enough in the planning system to build the sort of houses that people want and to create an escalator so that people can get an affordable first unit uh, and then work their way up through the market. And thirdly, we live in the most entrepreneurial age. More and more young people want to be liberated and be empowered to have their own business. I'd love a really radical tax program that said, look, if you're renting, we'll help you build up a pension kitty, we'll help you build up shares. You know, we, we need to encourage much wider share ownership and really support the innovators and the entrepreneurs you know, people in tech city who are starting companies. Mm-hmm. We don't want them spending all their money on rent or if they don't want to on a, on a mortgage. We should be supporting them to live really affordably and live in that creative entrepreneurial economy with much wider share ownership. When we, when we talk about all, all these really interesting policy conundrums and, and these broader questions about capitalism and so on, one of the rate, which, which I do a lot at CapEx, one of the regular frustrations is it seems like the proven economics and the kind of intellectual um battle is still still feels one i mean it's it, it's there aren't i don't read um alternative solutions to these problems that i think are particularly persuasive but the but so so that argument still feels like we're on the right side of it right but i don't feel like i don't feel the same about the politics what do you think explains that gap between the kind of intellectual and and sort of real world arguments and these cultural political kind of um sort of drift well two things partly i think because we're all talking to ourselves um so capex a pro-market think tank doing Uh great work um me a conservative pro-market reformer you know we all think this is obvious Right. We shouldn't be in this room is what you're saying we should be out well i mean i think this is important (laughs) I, i love the podcast but we all know, I'm sure, a lot of people, if I turned out of my house and knocked on all the doors up and down my street, I think you'd find the majority of people really concerned that the housing market isn't working, the social care market isn't working, that public service model isn't working properly, that so many of the markets, the utility markets, mm-hmm. and I think Jeremy Corbyn's narrative about rigged markets mm-hmm. resonated Um, And as conservatives, uh, I sometimes controversially say, I believe in the rigged market. I want to rig it in favor of the little guy, of the insurgent, of the new entrant. We believe in competitive markets, free markets, open markets. We we should have been embarrassed and impatient long before the left that the utilities privatizations that we led, championed in the 80s, have seen over the last couple of decades a coalescence back to three or four big providers, frankly, not empowering customers enough but we weren't Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. And I think it makes it harder then to be associated with the power of the market as an empowering force. I think actually it's in the zeitgeist of new generation conservatism. We need to be harnessing the power of markets so that markets work for people, not the other way around. Mm -hmm. Well, that's one of the things that's often missed is, um, you know, when a market said to be not delivering for people, whether that's uh, the, whether it's the railways or energy or housing, that's too often assumed to mean that free markets are failing people. Whereas right, you should often, go for a non-market solution. Whereas actually, the status quo isn't necessarily that free and. It exactly. might be a bit better if it was a little bit freer. So just on that note, let's wrap up with a question about, let's go back to the beginning, which was these various uh, schemes in Westminster to try and make the case for all these things at Freer, at the CPS, other places. What do you think their sort of top priority should be um, in terms whether that's policy focus and, and who they should be sort of pitching to and that kind of thing? Well, look, in the end, I think there are basically th- three big elements of of that um, sort of hashtag Tory renewal <laughs> through Brexit. One is economics. Um, we've somehow got to get to 3% growth, not one, and drive an economic program through the next few years, which is more empowering, more insurgent, more cartel-busting, more, more inspiring. Uh, and there's a lot of work going on in that, in that space. Secondly, uh, I think there's a... Uh, social justice and public service agenda, which I think is about 21st century vision in in which we we end the sort of stale apartheid, that the public services and social justice can only be delivered through a sort of high welfare state model, which has to be funded off tax from the private sector. So private good, public bad, and sort of public sector has to be condemned to being sort of second rate. I I think that's going to fail, won't inspire, and is not good enough for the 21st century. So I'd like a much more ambitious model of modern public services. In my case of life sciences, if we want to drive 3 4 5% growth in life sciences, the NHS has got to be much more pro-innovation, and that requires a different approach for the Treasury to un- unlock the power of local health leaders to drive integrated health economies. If we want to lead the way in aut- uh, autonomous vehicles, it's not just research, we've got to actually pilot them. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd let all our mayors have a billion pound infrastructure bonds to drive automated mass transit infrastructure systems for their cities. So I, I think if we loosened up and allowed local economies to flower, we'd drive more innovation. So secondly, there's a, there's a thing in there about a different approach to social justice, um, social enterprise, different models. If you look at the work the CSJ is doing, it's making the old state-dependent welfareism look dispiriting, depressing, and ineffective. Uh, and showing a different way. And thirdly, uh, the, the, there's a cultural element to politics. There's a, there's a spirit, a zeitgeist. And I think Freer is trying to remind everyone that free markets are important because they drive liberty and freedom and free thinking and free mm-hmm. speech. And, and the Big Tent Ideas Festival is about actually celebrating that spirit of creativity, of risk-taking at the heart of good enterprise. And that in the end, you can't have political renewal, economic renewal, without cultural and societal renewal. Markets require cultures, and they require public services, and we've, we've got to make the case together. And the Big Tent is simply a platform for all of these great groups to come together. And I think we do need strength in, in diversity. I hear some people say, you know, shouldn't we amalgamate all these groups into one? I think that would be a mistake. The strength is in the diversity. Um, it's a question of orchestrating them into a symphonic 
case for conservatism rather than a uh, the sound of an orchestra warming up, which is rather dissonant. <laughs> but that too is part of the creative process. George Freeman, thanks a lot. Thank you. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.